everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. One thing that everyone can probably agree on is that we live in a broken world, and we as humans are affected by that. This trauma and dysfunction affects how we experience church culture, teachings, and ministries. In this episode, Lead Pastor Nick Gibson talks with Jill Reese and Abigail Ramersberger on what trauma is, the impact of trauma in the local church, and next steps that we can take within the church to work towards being a redemptive family. Jill brings her perspective of working through her own past trauma and working in the local church, while Abigail provides a clinical counseling perspective. As always, if you've got any questions about what you heard, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, my name is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking today about um, trauma and its relationship to ministry in the local church and discipleship and God's process of healing through the gospel of Christ. And there's a couple um, things I want to say to frame this. The first is um, people have probably noticed that you hear the word trauma a lot more than you used to. It's become a very popular word. And the problem with popular words is sometimes we don't know their definitions or meanings. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that because the emphasis on trauma isn't going to go away anytime soon. Um, We as a society have been becoming more aware of psychological trauma for a while. And in our present culture, there is quite a lot of trauma. We have plenty of refugees from the sexual revolution. There's a lot coming from the destruction of the family. There's always kind of been a lot in human societies forever. We're just figuring that out a little bit more now. There's all kinds of um, effects from social pathologies and systematic oppressions, um, trauma that comes from just unfortunate events and accidents. And then there's interpretational traumas where like a kid can actually misinterpret something in their childhood and it can actually really traumatize them because of their perception of something that isn't even accurate. But the result is the same. People have wounds that are very difficult to get rid of and that have effects on their present response to things and how they're living their lives in the present. So, um, the church is has got to figure this out. There's also been a lot of talk of trauma in relationship to um, racial reconciliation, recon, racial reconciliation and justice in the present. We might talk about that a little, but we want to be as general as we can. In some ways, being that this is our first major conversation about this, so I want to invite uh, and in, introduce you to guests. So there's been a few women working on a um, a, tra- a group that to focus on trauma and recovering from trauma at High Point. It's still kind of in its experimental stages. It hasn't really opened up. Um, to the wider church yet, but two of the people who've been given it some leadership is Jill Reese, who is my um, past. Well, she's got a new title, pastoral projects assistant. Is that right, Jill? I, you know, I feel embarrassed to say this, but I don't even know what my title yeah. is in the present. Yeah, <laughs> because it, it's, it's sort of morphing. Senior but. pastor assistant was something. It's a lot of things. I help anyway. Nick with content and ministry and yeah, whatever yeah. he needs help with. And Jill has had interesting has a lot had a lot of interest in discipleship, especially as it relates to overcoming trauma. A lot of that has to do with her background, her story that you've heard some of before if you've listened to the podcast, and you'll hear more probably today. And then secondly is a person you may not know who's been part of High Point for a while. I'll let her say exactly how long. But Abigail Romersberger is um, she is burgeoning into a new career in counseling. She um, has been studying this a lot as part of her degree, as part of her work. And also as part of this group that they're working on together. And so she's here kind of as the um, the clinical Christian voice. But Abigail has a long and winding story. She's a missionary kid. She speaks fluent Japanese. Hopefully we'll hear some of that today. And um, this is a real interest for her as well. And I know there's some of this in her story also that she can share as she finds it relevant. So welcome. Do you guys want to say hi or introduce yourself or whatever before I just dive right in? Yeah, I'm Abigail Romersberger and... 
Uh, all right, thank you. I think you said it all. I'm really excited to be here. I've been with High Point. Um, oof, I'm not going to do the <laughs> the addition, but since um, August of 2019. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. okay. Why don't we start with like just a little bit of like, before we get into like the information and stuff, why do each of you care about this? Mm-hmm. Abby, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, One of the reasons why I care about this so much is because it is so prevalent and it is such an important thing to be able to address, uh, to have the, 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 the knowledge about and to develop skills to address because it, it is first of all so prevalent in, in our American uh, society in you know Japan where where I, where I grew up um, all over all over the world you know trauma is everywhere it's it's um, and, and trauma is deeply uh, deeply deeply harmful uh, in the life of, of a developing human being and so it, it is something so important to know how to come around and, and support in order um, to create a healthy society, right? So, and just create a healthy mm-hmm. community and, and people, lives, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, Jill? Yeah, I, well, I'm, I didn't know this at the time, but um, I both have experienced trauma um, related to illness. I didn't know this at the time that I was experiencing trauma, but related to chronic illness and when I was very young and then also some abandonment and then f- out of that some dysfunctional family dynamics and mm-hmm. I had always sort of known something was off in that regard but then um, didn't really know how to articulate it for myself and then sort of a, on a parallel path I've always since I've become a Christian in high school I've loved the local church and have been so drawn to the local church I remember feeling when I was in high school that like I felt so at home in my church and um, felt loved by people there and it's not that I wasn't loved at all in my own biological family but I think the connection for me was this redemptive family of the local church, I was feeling the effects of that and that the um, importance to me was directly related to some gaps that I was seeing in my own life or feeling in my own life rather than seeing. And so just recently in the last few years as I've really dug in and explored and worked through some past um, trauma and experiences in my own life, um, those two things have started to come together for me since I've worked in the church for five years now. And in the last few years have been going to trauma counseling and working through um, past wounds in my own life. So I, I'm very excited about it. Excited, not in a, like, this is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's, it's filled with a lot of pain, but I feel very passionately about it and feel a godly burden for people who have experienced either dysfunctional or broken families or trauma. Yeah, as as um as we try to think fully in a biblical way about salvation, that there's always in the Bible there there are, there are all kinds of different metaphors like the legal justification that we're counted innocent. But one of the one of the big ones is therapeutic, that is healing. Right, the, mm-hmm. the word therapy comes from the Greek word for healing, and to be healed. And so healing is has always been part of the gospel being worked out in people's lives. Um, so there's two two categories here that have been brought up already. One is trauma, the other is dysfunction. Right. 
So just to clarify for people, those are both things that leave effects in people's lives. Both things that it may not be obvious how to overcome them. It may be more complicated than just believe in Jesus and engage in self-discipline by mm-hmm. means of the spirit. In both cases, it may mean that more has to be done to get at that. Um, and in both the notes cases, that, sorry. Yeah, I'm, yeah so I'm about to ask you a question specifically about oh, that, okay, Abigail. So it, one of the things that you talked about in relationship to this as we prepared for the podcast was that um, one of the things about trauma is that it affects people on a core level. And so that not only is pervasive and long lasting, but it also means that there's like different levels you have to get at to really get at the therapeutic need of the person who's been traumatized or who's experienced trauma. You want to say a little bit about that so people can understand how, right. kind of how, how it's a deeper, the devil is deeper than we often want to think, especially if we have kind of a magic view of discipleship. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and, so I was going to say both of those also act as barriers to us engaging um, in our full capacity with Christ, right? And and that's such an important aspect to, to understand, right? And and why we pre- why should we work through uh, the dysfunction in our life? Why should we work through our trauma? It's painful. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that, right? Well, it's because it allows us. It facilitates us to have a a more glorifying. Uh, relationship with Christ and more glorifying life um, to God. Yeah. And- Abigail, let me frame that a little bit for you. So one of the metaphors I use for people is um, that it's kind of like if you're trying to push a wagon and somebody puts a piece of wood under the wheel and it just stops. And and if you don't know that like you ran into something with the wheel, you're like, you can get like really angry. Like why won't this wheelbarrow go? But you have to, you just, you have to remove that piece of wood to push the wheelbarrow further. And some people want to get further in their discipleship and they find themselves stuck. They keep having that same fight with their spouse. They keep engaging that same unwanted sexual behavior. They keep like, they just keep doing something and they get really focused on the sin and they don't know why they keep doing it. And they've gotten good advice about how to, what to do to stop or what they shouldn't do. And they find that they can't do it. And in my experience as a pastor, that's usually because there's some kind of clinical issue and the two biggest culprits I often run into into is some kind of dysfunctional way of thinking about how humans are supposed to behave or some really core level effect of trauma that they don't understand how it's affecting them. Right. Right. So trauma affects us at a core level. And, and like I said earlier, you know, it is pervasive and long lasting Uh, and, and, right along with what Nick said, right? This means that healing must be done on several different levels. So there's the first domain, that's the thoughts and feelings and behaviors, right? That's just scratching the surface. Uh, that's some stuff that we can deal with, with um, several different approaches. I won't, I won't go into all that now, but like cognitive behavioral therapy is just one that addresses that domain really well. Wow. And then there's the, the second domain, which is the core beliefs. So an example of that is, or there's a second domain that trauma affects, right? that uh, trauma first, you know, might introduce a lie to us. So, and the lie might be something like people I care about will abandon or reject me. Right. And that moves to the schema of abandonment and instability, which then moves to the domain of disconnection and rejection. Right. So these deep, deep wounds that are so fundamental in the core of, of who we are. And so, so deep down in our very soul, right. It's more than, it it, it is more than just behavioral and cognitive. It is also very spiritual. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And that moves us into the third domain, which is uh, relationship, right? So it, it, in order to work healing at, at such a deep fundamental le- level, uh, the, the wound is, is often relational and healing work has to be done in the same arena, right? Of, you know, resolving these unresolved conflicts, um, resolving these relational wounds, the, the spiritual longings and the, the nuclear family problems, right? So it, it's, it's very core. So, yeah, Abigail, I think one of the things like you were talking about um, cognitive behavioral therapy, I, th- I think people sometimes don't know the clinical name for that, but it's kind of like what all of us think we learned about psychology and kind of like use incompetently on each other. It's kind of like, Oh, like what was your mom like? And like, Oh, you know, if you think about it this way, it's like you get all these like positive thinking books and you get all these, like, here's how you can think about that. We could just change your thinking if that's going to do it. And one of the things I think you're saying people need to realize about trauma is, yeah. I mean, there's all these kind of like, like how to, how to make things more functional. But if you don't deal with the schema level of how people see the world and see themselves in it, and then in some ways, how that connects with their most primal needs that create very visceral emotional reactions, then you can tell people to behave differently, but they're going to be so flooded by these deep visceral reactions of insecurity or brokenness or hurt or fear of abandonment that it just interrupts the whole process and them trying to think differently about it. And if you don't get deep enough, you just aren't going to get leverage. Yeah. Something I, I have, have used before is an analogy that I have used is it is like just, just working at that surface level is like just sn- snipping off or cutting off a, a weed. What's going to happen. You're not going to see that specific part of the weed. Right. But you're just right. going to have another one pop up in some other area of your life or maybe much mm-hmm. later. And you're like, why in the world am I struggling with this? Right. And it can right. be tied back to those core, deep, um, just like lies that you believed. And, and um, yeah. And I think that's really right? critical for people who have a background in evangelical Christianity because um, evangelicals have a high view of the Bible. Because of that, we have a high view of sin and that we should stop doing sins. And so it's really easy to get really focused on that. So like if you have a guy and he's looking at pornography, the sin is lust related to looking at pornography, which he should stop doing. And it's really easy to get focused on that. Like, okay, just stop doing that. When, you know, um, when you start working on some of these things, you're like, okay, wait a second, but why are you doing that? Why do you have that particular fantasy? Like what's, what? Right. And so if, and I think it's easy as evangelicals because we're so focused on stopping sin because we want to obey. We don't look at some of like the deeper poisons and why are we doing this and why are we so easily manipulated by sin and why do we turn to that thing thinking that it's going to help us in our primal need and so on. And if we don't do that, I mean, I've seen people, I've seen men struggling with like sexual sin, for example, for 25 years. And they're still really just working on the cognitive level or, or you might just say the, like the, step one discipleship level of, Hey, we should learn to stop doing that. But when self-control, when growing and just trying to grow in just personal discipline doesn't do it, it's okay to ask a question. Why you're not questioning the power of the Holy spirit. What may be happening is God wants to bring a deeper healing. And I think is it Jay Stringer that says he may, God may be willing to use the evil of your sin. If it will point you to the deeper wound that must be healed so you can be free. And I, th- I think that I think that's true, and I think I've seen that happen in people. Because if you don't deal with the trauma, even if you can stop the sin for a while, 
like Abigail was saying, is you cut off the top of that weed and three more heads are going to grow back. Like mm-hmm. the, the wound will find a manifestation that satiates the core need that you have that is messed up somehow. Mm-hmm. And until you can figure that out, your attempts at holiness are going to like, I, I think it's good to try to stop doing bad stuff. But like Abigail was saying is you can do that top level counseling or you can exert self-control or you can engage in like straightforward discipleship and that can like stop the bleeding, like keep you from doing stuff that hurts you more. Right. So if if I, if I'm talking to, let's say a young woman and she's having, she's like a believer and she's having promiscuous sex and she knows she's not doing it and she doesn't know why she keeps getting drunk and hooking up with a guy like every three months. And I go, okay, okay. Let's stop hooking up with guys and getting drunk every three. Like, let's try to stop that. Right. But I would never now at this point in ministry, at least say, you know, stop being a dirty, like person who does that and do something. I would be like, okay, sweetie, there's a reason why you do that every three months. And until we figure that out and deal with it, you're going to, you're just going to do this or something else. And so let's try to stop that. But then we've got to get at the thing, the dysfunction or the trauma or the something. Right. And if I can just chime in there, I think it's important to add like that clarifier of sometimes working really hard, like as the dysfunctional person, you you shouldn't be saying to yourself like, oh, I'm just going to allow these, these uh, you know, dysfunctional behaviors because I'm focused on meeting the core need, right? Because if you can snip off some of those weeds, it actually allows you to be able to mm-hmm see more clearly right Mm -hmm. and it gives you kind of the breathing space or or gives you know the holy spirit room to like kind of come in and start working and and so i think there's there's value to that but almost like it needs you need to light the candle on both ends or whatever and and be working you know both at the same time does that what do you think about that i think yeah so maybe jill you want to come on this too but i actually i want to hear what i say about this as well is in my experience when i'm dealing with people who are really dealing with trauma is some of their behaviors are to meet, like just sort of meet core needs. Some of it is just like to avoid pain. Yeah. Because, and sometimes it's hard for them to sort out which they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I see that with, with people engaging in sexual sin, but other stuff too. But like um, other stuff that like wouldn't necessarily be on the face of it, um, sinful behavior. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. it still is like showing something. And I've, I've had so many people tell me recently as we've focused more on helping people with their trauma in our pastoral ministry, I've had so many more people say, okay, we're dealing with this, but like, it hurts so much. I hate this. Mm -hmm. This sucks. Insert lots of curse words. Like (laughs) they, they're just like, this is so, uh, there's one guy I've been working through like a, like a six week or whatever thing. And it's taken us like six months. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, every time I sit down to do this, I just want to do anything but do this mm-hmm. because it's so, pa- it's so painful. Yeah. Right. But I was like, okay, so you did it this week though. Are you, are you glad you did it? And they always say, yeah, I'm really glad I did it. It was, mm-hmm. it was really good. I, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. But I see there's so much just like, like, I think Abigail already said this. She was like, it's really painful. Mm-hmm. And so it's not weird that people would want to avoid, avoid mm-hmm. it. And I, my experience as a pastor over doing this for like 25 years now is most human beings will avoid the pain of dealing with their trauma until they have no other choice. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience. Yeah. <clears throat> I, w- I want to say something to someone who might be listening from like a dysfunction. You are that dysfunctional person. First of all, it's not fun 
to think of yourself as a dysfunctional person. And so you might not be aware of your dysfunctions. And so that was the case for me. I think I knew something was off, but I could sort of fake normal and fake capacity for a good amount of time. And a lot of that is called repression. And so um, if you might be a a highly capable person Mm -hmm. and have some of these dysfunctions that will pop up. And so I want to talk about just like a few of a few ways you might be able to notice that you might need to work through some of these. But um, I do want to say first that for me, it was just this general sense of these moments of like, I don't know what that person is talking about. I feel stuck in this way. Like I, and what it felt like to me was I just felt um, stupid for not knowing. Like I felt like someone else just knew how to do it. And I, I somehow didn't. And so something was wrong with me. And so um, I, if you feel that way often, I want to encourage you to look a little bit more closely at what might be dysfunctional, um, which is not fun to look at. You mean like a social situation in which you thought you were behaving properly and then you found out like you definitely weren't? Yeah, I'll give a few examples. Um, uh, So first, or that just something was off, like disconnected between what was happening in the situation and my response to um, or what someone wanted me to do and what I was doing that just made me feel that feel stupid or like I couldn't do it. Um, first was actually, since we're talking about within the church, um, when I was in seventh grade, I think this is a good example of just the awareness we should have. Um, and this is a sort of an extreme example, but um, my Sunday school teacher, so my parents had recently gotten divorced and my mom was the one who was bringing me to church and we only came every other week with her and we the other weeks we were with my dad and my Sunday school teacher pulled me aside after class one day and was and said Jill you should be coming to church every week why aren't you coming to church every week or actually she didn't ask why she just said I should be and I didn't I, I don't even remember being able to speak because in my head I was like I don't even know how to describe to you why I can't like I can't drive myself here I didn't know anyone else who had divorced parents at that time and so it just felt like this thing I was supposed to do but couldn't deliver on. And that's just one example from when I was younger. Um, another example is with hospitality. Um, we, I, I've always, I, for a while I struggled with, I was really anxious to invite people over into my home. And I just thought that I was really introverted and didn't like people um, or didn't need to be around people very often. But um, I realized later that um, I my family just didn't have people over. There were a number of years that were very very difficult in our family, and we didn't we didn't invite people into our home. And I didn't invite friends to my house after about age ten. Very often, I, I think I can like think of a few examples <laughs> off the top of my head. But um, and so I just didn't. Ha- I felt like. Um, actually Jay Stringer, who Nick mentioned, he wrote the book Unwanted. He has an example. He has an analogy where he said, it's like you're trying to cook a recipe, but what you've experienced is food poisoning. And so you don't know what it's supposed to taste like and you don't have the recipe card, but other people do. Um, and so you're trying to get there and you want to, you want to do it and you agree with, like, I agreed that I should have people in my home, but it was very, like I had a gap there of what that should look like and what I do even in certain, like, what do I say? What do I make? What do I, what do we do after dinner? Like, I just, 
it sounds so simple, but um, that's why it feels like I'm stupid on the other end of it and not seeing how it's done. Yeah. Abigail, I, I'm tempted to ask you a question, but having listened to that, you might also have something that you just want to say. Do you have something you're cooking up right now to say, or do you want me to ask you a question? I, I don't have anything I'm cooking up. I was just listening. That's oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. What a good listener. Um, so some of the stuff that, that Jill was talking about has to do with trauma. It also has to do with just dysfunction, like things right. weren't yeah. healthy. And then, and then you like, you don't know what healthy is, but like, but oftentimes where there's dysfunction, you, you also have trauma that is mm-hmm. a harm created in somebody's heart and mind. And how does that complicate overcoming dysfunction? Like some of us just like, there's an issue, you learn that's wrong, you figure out another way to do it. But for some people it's harder because their dysfunction is compounded by trauma. Can you like help people like help help me help me conceptualize like what's the difference between somebody who's just got to overcome a dysfunction that they observed and somebody who like the actual experience of trauma is compounding their ability to change. Okay, the, the so difficulty to change. Yeah, let me get so there's a 15-year-old kid whose friends all start um smoking cigarettes and he observes that. And so he starts smoking cigarettes versus a a 15 year old who is so overwhelmed at home and so stressed out. And and there's like, you know, maybe his parents are in the process of divorcing and, and there's Mm -hmm. just a ton of stuff going on at home. And he then finds, Hey, that smoking cigarettes kind of changes, like kind of helps me like zone out and peace out. Right. Or, or whatever. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Because it's stemmed by mm-hmm. something else. Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it is, I, I would think more difficult for the person who has um, that, you know, trauma and difficulty compounding their motivation for seeking um, coping, unhealthy coping mechanisms. It is more difficult for those individuals to break the ties, break the habits, because there is so much, um, often there's just so much insecurity, uh, instability in their life. And that is one, you know, found true trustable escape right or mm-hmm. does that make sense and By, it's you know, reliable at least it, it, yeah yeah yes yes reliable right and yeah, so because people will do things that actually harm them that they still mm-hmm. consider trustable yes. because yes. it's the, it's Cutting. reliable right 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 yeah self-harm is yeah just one i think of too right um yeah, it's painful. And so when when you're engaging with a person who reveals that to you, rather than being responding with, you know, harshness or judgment um, of, of what in the world, why are you doing that? You know, or you're crazy. That's terrible. Ooh, gross. You know, mm-hmm. um, responding with love and seeking to gain insight, right? Gaining insight and and fostering the relationship, right? Being like connecting to them. Dude, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, like, where's that coming from? Right. And, and, or what's going on with you. Right. Mm-hmm. That 
that makes you, you know, feel like, like this is something that's helping you. Right. Do you feel like part of the issue with a lot of cases of trauma is they have no idea what's going on with them because it's so visceral a reaction that it's not obvious. Like it's not even obvious to them why they're doing something that they're just, they're like, I don't know. I'm just angry or like, I don't know. I just feel. Yeah, I do. I I do. I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I think that that is uh, what will take if you are, you know, their true friend and you really care about them. That's what will take you being committed to spending hours uh, in conversation or hours in quality time or hours in uh, playing a video game with them or, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right. Connecting Mm -hmm. to them, building that relationship and slowly, slowly. um, Yeah. Being there for them and unraveling that. Why is that so important in the therapeutic process of healing? Like, like if, if the, if the trauma came from an event and the event had a effect on how they think and feel about things, why would a lot of time with somebody who cares about them be particularly good for them? It's creating a safe place for them a lot of the time. Right. And I mean, and first of all, trauma is so diverse, like what kind of trauma, like what, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and so as you're asking these questions, all that's going in my head is like, well, every single person is different, you know, every Mm -hmm. single situation is different. And, and, um, but, but you still see the generalization that those relationships and that quality time is is still broadly really important for most people. Yeah, what comes to mind is is because what is that? That is love, giving them love, right, and care, yeah. and love conquers all, right? Um, mm-hmm. It nurtures and grows good things. Dr. Henry Cloud uh, wrote a book called Changes That Heal that's been really helpful for me. And in that book, he talks about how um, relation or wounds are created in relationship. It's someone hurting us or mm-hmm. us hurting someone else. And so they have to be repaired and healed in relationship. And so he talks and he also has this concept of redemptive time where um, he'll talk about traumas or hurts as this place where we get kind of stuck in time at a particular point where we were injured and that we've been operating out of since that point. And so to heal, you have to go back and address that and identify it, but then you have to engage in redemptive time. And that's really difficult as a wounded person. Um, I think it's easy when you've been victimized to, it's easier to stay a victim and it's easier to be hurt. Um, and to continue operating out of what's familiar. And it's very, very difficult to change how you've been operating since that time that you were hurt. And so it does, there is a responsibility there for, and you're, and it's going to be hard work to engage in that redemptive time and to try, it's going to take trying um, in, in new relationships when you aren't going to feel like trusting someone or it's going to feel really wrong because <laughs> your your whole system is wired to say, this is bad, get away, <laughs> um, which gets back to that escape um, stuff that you were talking about. But um, yeah, I think that concept of redemptive time and redemptive relationships has been really helpful for me and something that's kept me going both as I mentor other people, but in myself as I've had to encourage, like exhort myself and preach the gospel to myself to engage in 
redemptive time and to trust the community that God has placed around me who displays Christ to me. Um, And so, yeah, I think he has a really helpful paradigm for that concept that you were getting at, Nick. Cool. Abigail? <laughs> yeah, I, I was just, I, I was thinking. You <laughs> raised your all, finger like you were prepared to. I, that was me. <laughs> that was my aha moment. Or <laughs> I didn't, I forgot you could see me there. Um, yeah, because branching out from those dysfunctional relationships, right? You're, you, that's what, that's all you have known is that dysfunction, right? And so. And familiar feels nice. Yeah, familiar, right? It, it is predictable. It is yeah. consistent. It's just. It's you know what to expect, and that's terrifying to branch out from there because you don't you don't know. And to hope on something like that disappointment piece is so powerful, right? I mean, I, I have spent so long with certain clients, just like talking to them about like, you know, well, what have you got to lose, right? Like try try it, you know, try try this coping skill or whatever it is, you know, this change out. And they're like, yeah, you don't understand. I'm I can li- I can like keep breathing here. But if I try and I'm disappointed, like, I don't think I can take that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I, I just agreed with everything you said that, that um, we can, if we engage in relationship and engage and love individuals, the best that we can, the best and stay in tune with the Holy spirit, right. As we're doing so the Holy spirit can kind of guide our footsteps with them. Um, we can model healthier relationships and, and that's so key, right? Just like what you said, Jill. Um, <laughs> Cause as a therapist, as a therapist, right. I try to model, a, you know, a healthy relationship with them while maintaining, you know, professional boundaries and all of that. But, but that's, that's only usually one hour of, you know, a week or every other week or a month or whatnot. Um, and, and we can't sustain that. So they leave our safe space of the therapy room and they go out into the dysfunctional you know, world around them. And so it gives me so much peace uh, with, with a client or, or gives me so much reassurance, reassurance with the client when I establish with them, work with them to find um, healthy relationships, right? Redemptive relationships. Um, and to see them intentionally working, and it's such hard work, but working to shift their world from what they're you know comfortable and, and what's regular to them, but shifting their world toward redemptive relationships, right? It's a fight, and it's it's a an exhausting, exhausting fight, but it's so worth it. Yeah, I think one of the things that both of you were kind of getting at is I have seen people who I, I would consider from dysfunctional backgrounds where their families have some kind of social pathology functioning and you get them into a healthy situation and they just grab a hold of it with both hands. And then there's other folks who like push it away. They like it and yet they push it away too. Um, are there, like what's I think one of the things that people struggle with, like in, in church life, we've sometimes we just use the word wound as a non-technical term for something you're trying to overcome that isn't that, that abides in you. Like, like you, like it's, a, it's in a place deeper than you feel like you've been able to dig out and it's hard to, it's hard to heal from. 
Um, but I, I think one of the things that sometimes people struggle with is whenever you have like a technical word from a field that starts getting used a lot in public discourse, mm-hmm. people start to wonder what the heck the word means. Mm-hmm. So like Abigail, when you think of this definitionally, does trauma have a like a really well-defined boundary in terms of like what counts for trauma or is it like, no, a trauma is a wound, man. Like, and so there's huge gradations in the intensity of the wound, but a trauma is a wound and we live in a fallen world and probably everybody has some group of wounds. It just depends on how intense they are, how they work against each other, like how debilitating it is. It's in that sense, it's relative. There's everybody has wounds. Some are relative and some are bad enough that create a dysfunction in their life. And so then we call that trauma because it needs this particular kind of counseling for them to be functional. Like how, how would, how would you explain someone who's like, is this just a willy nilly word we just throw around now? Cause it sounds cool. Or, or can I tell the difference between somebody who's trauma, who has trauma clinically speaking though, and who doesn't, but just has problems. Yeah. Clinically speaking, I think the, the, the latest definition from the DSM five, which is the, you know, the diagnostic statistical manual um, for, you know, counselors and psychiatrists is, is trauma, um, is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. Um, Directly experiencing it, witnessing um, in person the events, learning the traumatic events happened, or experiencing repeated extreme exposure to details of the traumatic event, right? And, And so just to kind of, to follow up on that, you know, when we really get into all the diagnoses and the DSM-5 and, and the different things like that, they have all these criteria that you have to meet in order to, you know, you have to meet the criteria in order to be diagnosed with like ASD, acute stress disorder, which is, you know, one of the big um, traumatic disorders or PTSD or an adjustment disorder. But not all traumatic stress responses can be can be captured by, you know, PTSD or any of the, those labels, right? Like it, it is very complex. Right. And so I, if someone says, no, this was traumatic for me, I, I'm not going to push back and be like, uh, actually, you don't meet the criteria A, C and X, you know, for that. It's, it's right. Like, I'm just going to focus on being like, wow, you know, like I'm here for you. I'm there for you, you know, but I, I, um, I think that the, the word trauma or it was, you know, traumatic for me or, or I was traumatized is, thrown around uh too often um and and i i like to you know kind of press into that with people and be like oh well you know it seems like you kind of want this diagnosis or want uh to be victimized you know and and so kind of like where is that where is that stemming from right Mm -hmm. um and I don't know if I'm if I'm kind of answering your question, Nick, or not, right? But it's it's yeah, it's a it's a good question, and it's and it's rather a complex one to, to answer. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I think that that folks. Um, so part of part of my my assumptions here, based on like my my ministry, is the effects that events have on people seem to be in some ways pr- fairly dependent on people's temperaments. Right. So like, I remember when I was studying sexual, sexual orientation theory 
in relationship to counseling research. There, there was one particular study I read about um, homosexual men and straight men and their PTSD responses to the Vietnam War. And the um, the men who were homosexual also were, were statistically much more likely to experience PTSD symptoms from participating in the Vietnam War. And the, the psychologists who published the studies, the way they interpreted that was, they said, what we think is, is that gay men are off have a more tend to have a more sensitive temperament that homosexuality in males and more sensitive temperaments in males tend to go together. And so it may, would make sense that war experience might be more traumatic for a subgroup that statistically may have a more sensitive temperament. My, my experience in ministry is that people who are sensitive of temperament, I seem to have a lot of people like that who are, either clinically traumatized or like greatly harmed by wounds they carry from their experiences. And it seems to be in, in a significant portion because they're sensitive. And so when things happen to them, they had more sensitive responses to them and were, they're just, they're maybe more, maybe more easily damaged. And I think there's, there's huge benefits to sensitivity in human temperaments. But I also think that it also can make, it seems like it can make you more susceptible to being damaged or harmed deeply. So in that sense, it wouldn't be my, in my experience, whether or not somebody experiences something like trauma that, that stays with them and is hard to overcome without a certain kind of help. It isn't just objectively related to the external circumstances that they experience, but subjectively related to the sort of, person the sort of temperament that they have and sort of person that they are yeah i have a question off of that i don't know the answer to i just what you were saying made me think of this um i also wonder like how much of it is a chicken and the egg kind of situation like which one comes first because i do wonder if there's um there's situations where a trauma happens and then that person is more sensitive because of that. Like they, they're more. Um, and so Abby, I'd be interested if you know, like I know that there's science behind the like amygdala and like the size of the amygdala. And I don't know if that's set like before, like when you're born or if that grows, if you've experienced trauma or um, like those stress responses yeah. that might make you more sensitive. I wonder if maybe it is set preset or if like something would happen and that it could change you. I'm sure it, I mean, it does change you, but I just wonder like how much it plays off of each other and. Right. So, so one thing uh, you know, I know is that trauma begats trauma. And now that I say that word begats, I'm not sure how I pronounced it right. Basically, if you experience trauma, uh, you're more likely to um, continue to kind of experience it and um, you're more likely to experience more trauma and and that is what you know statistics have, have kind of told us there uh, I I is it is that because you think people some people like people can just read they have a target on their backs and oh, people so true. see them as prey yeah. Yeah. or do you think that it's people mm-hmm. who have in interpret things traumatically or do you think it's because the present, the new experience is associated with the previous traumatic experience. And then they find the new experience traumatizing because they found the previous experience traumatizing. 
Right. I think it's a mixture all three, of both. It's, it's very, yeah, it yeah. is. Oh yeah. All three. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. There's truth to all of that or, or simply that, you know, um, because of their kind of predispositions, uh, that, that make them more likely to experience um, trauma or like, you know, their etiology or what, what not right Their social economic status, their family dysfunction, their, their, um, mm-hmm. their gender in that part of, uh, you know, a place it, or their age in all, in all of um, that, it, it, they are traumatized once, especially if it was an interpersonal trauma, then of course they're more likely to experience trauma again, right? If they're being hurt by their uncle, right? That that's that's going to keep on probably happening, you know, for for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, you guys. I don't work. I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about this in relationship to the local church. One of the things you've been working on is a is like a group um, specifically targeted towards women to try to deal with trauma. But also, you've been thinking a little bit about the fact that how a lot of people won't go to counseling because they don't want to pay for it or they can't pay for it. Um, a lot of people just won't go because they just won't go. And also, even if they do go, you know, they're going to go for an hour a week, you know, and um, having other contexts in which those people get support is important. So how are you guys, how have you been, how have you, you two ladies been thinking about how the local church can function either with or alongside or whatever in relationship to clinical counseling so that people can, can be healed and also be healed in Christ so that their discipleship increases, not just because, because you can get free from trauma so that you're more free to sin too. Like you just more in control of your life. You can actually go traumatize other people because you just in more, but instead for like you to grow in healing and that healing to be compounded by growing in discipleship, and then you get a you get a, a positive positive feedback loop between that healing, growth and discipleship, more healing, growth mm-hmm. and discipleship. As that, especially as you guys are thinking about that in terms of groups, I think. Mm-hmm. So, how have you yeah. been thinking about that, and, and how how does that affect the church's ministry? I will. I'll speak from more of an experiential perspective and from working in the church, but. Um, as I've gone to counseling, which has been very helpful, what it seems to me, the place for counseling is like when you're very sick and you need a doctor. And so you go to the doctor and they prescribe some things and um, they have some next steps. And you might have to go to the doctor for a little while, but going to the doctor is not the end goal of your health. Hopefully that you um, are able to recover and um it might take a while, but hopefully you're able to be like incorporate it. Your health is incorporated into your normal life and you don't have to go back to the doctor over and over. Um, and so I, I, in my own life, and I see this in the Bible too, scripturally, but the church is this place for um, these relationships that are redemptive. We're brothers and sisters in Christ and God has created for us a family. Um, and we, it, it talks in Psalm 68 about how um, God places the lonely in families. And in Isaiah 54, the barren woman, he is opening um, her tent and she's going to have generations of children. And I think those are meta- metaphorical expressions of the blessing of God in relationship. But um, I think the church is the place for that. <laughs> and that makes me really excited um, that 
we can come alongside each other and help each other heal and experience the culture of the kingdom. Um, and so I don't say that to mean that it replaces the biological family. They're both very important. But um, I think the importance of the local church is in modeling. We've talked a lot about mentoring but in, as a church, but um, the, the, the way that mentoring is very effective is that people learn through imitation. And we've just been going through a series on First Thessalonians too about that. But we learn by implicitly um, we, we learn implicitly, we learn by watching other people. And so, uh, for myself and for others who haven't, who've experienced brokenness or trauma, we don't have that. We may, there may be a gap in that modeling. And so to watch health and to watch, um, good relationships is really important. And so mentoring, whether, I had said to someone, you're my mentor, <laughs> or they told, you know, whether or not it was ex- ex- explicitly mentoring, um, I've just gained so much by watching other people's families and by being at their dinner table and by um, asking questions about marriage and um, about calling people for prayer when I'm not doing well and mm-hmm. and not being alone in the journey. And so yeah, counseling is very important and it's made me help me make huge connections. But I think um the healing I've experienced is through the relationships I've found in the local church, um including like my own biological family that I've started to create as well. But um I think there's counseling is not the end goal and that's really where the church comes into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with everything that Jill said. You know, counseling is not the end goal. It's giving you uh, resources to grow and become more like Christ, right, and be able to help others, right, come alongside Mm -hmm. others, right? And I think that trauma is a cognitive and a spiritual issue, uh, and it is an enemy at war with with our identity in Christ, right? And we have to be willing, like as a church, as a church body and as the people of Christ, um, followers of Christ, we have to be willing to, to step into that and meet people uh, in, in that the, the blood and the dirt step into it with, for our brothers and sisters, right? And, and if you're not willing to do that, then what are you even doing right like we are we are at war together right as as people and i think that the the goal would be to as a church to be able to see people and humanity and each other more and more with the lens of christ right and and with the love and the tears of christ Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with with folks who feel like they are deeply affected by traumatic offense from their past, um, I've talked to a number of people who function under the assumption that they're just always going to be like this. Hmm. Um, what what would you say to people like that in the context of the local church? Would you say? 
Yeah, that's kind of true. It's very difficult to not be like that. But the church is supposed to bear, we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. And so the church is still good news for you because we bear each other's burdens. Or is your response to them, yeah, you know what? You're probably not going to be better in two weeks, but you'd be surprised how much better you can be in two years and really surprised in two decades. And the local church can help you get from here to there, but you still have to be willing to face the pain of it. Mm-hmm. Like, how would you, how would you talk to somebody about that? I'll say the brain is neuroplastic. It's never too late to start working on trauma and we can see change. There is always hope. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and who are you to say what's impossible with God? <laughs> of course, as a counselor, I would I would not be you know, so direct. But but I would I would say no. There there is an endless ocean of of hope and healing mm-hmm. and science yeah, to back it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. A few thoughts come to my mind. Um, first is that we are called to be made new. And that, Nick, when you preached on that, it was in our Ephesian series, you talked about how we can't change what has happened or how, like what we've done up to this the point that we realize we need to be made new. And so the call is very much uh, a call to what do I do now? Like right now, what do I need to do? And I think that is the question in each moment is what do I need to, if I know that there's something wrong that's not how God intended whether it's hurt or sin or whatever it is I need to seek holiness in that area and godliness and I need to seek um, whatever the Lord has for healing and wholeness for me and so there there is this um, that might take I mean we're gonna be doing that for the rest of our lives <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's not gonna end um, but I think another thought another thought that comes to my mind is what we mean by will I get better um, I think, uh, as I've thought about this, I don't think better is going to mean that I'm less sad about certain things that have happened to me. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that I'm always going to remember them and they're going to come up and make me sad or there's going to be certain effects that linger, but I th- better in the sense of, do those things have a hold on me? Are they what's controlling my actions and behaviors and thoughts or is it increasingly Christ? And so, um, I mean, we're called to bear, to walk with each other in that process, and it mm-hmm. takes forever <laughs> on this earth. And so, I think it. We need to be careful about what we mean by better. But we are yeah. called to walk through suffering with one another, and bear the effects of suffering with one another. Yeah, I think one of the questions that folks in this context often have is. By change, I think it, it. Sometimes the question they're asking is, "Will it always be this hard?" Yeah. What do you think the answer? I'm not to that saying is? yeah. I'm not saying yeah. As in yes, it will always be that hard. I'm saying yeah. As I understand your question. I would just say, oh dear. <laughs> I had something that I thought, oh, that's such a hard. That is such a hard. Uh, question to respond to, I would say it comes and goes in waves Mm. and God has you in his hands and there is peace. A verse that comes to my mind is um, it's in first Peter and it says, 
to not be surprised about suffering. I, this is a paraphrase, but mm-hmm. it talks about not being surprised by the trials that you experience. And so, um, and all throughout the Bible, we read about how we're not to be surprised by suffering. And this is suffering. This is part, part of suffering is that we're, we're to expect it on this earth and it will be hard. And um, we're called to bear our cross um, to the grave and out. Like we, there's, the grave is not the end. Um, and that's what Jesus did. And so we're not alone in that and that we're, we're following our savior in that walk. And um, so, yeah, I would say that it might always be this hard. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if that's the right question even though I've asked it myself, I I don't know if it's the right question because we can't know how hard it's going to be and what God will call uh, require of us. But we know that we're not to be surprised by suffering, but we're also not alone in it. And um, it's an honor to bear the cross of Christ. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, oh, sorry. sorry, I just should have said, I, I, I should have said there is peace. I should have said, and God promises to us that, you know, he gives us peace and then we can choose peace peace and yeah yeah i agree with everything that joe said you said it beautifully joe thank you yeah i think one of the encouraging passages for me also is in romans 8 where it talks about mm-hmm. the presence of the spirit yeah and though the spirit is the spirit of life and the spirit of godliness and all those sorts of things in the later half of chapter 8 it says that the spirit intercedes for us in groans that are inaudible mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean like you can't hear it it means it means like not linguistic, like right. non, like non comprehensible, but but in the sense that it's nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I like that, I really like that phrasing, is because when we talk about trauma, oftentimes we talk about it functioning at a very primal level, almost almost preconsciously, so that you like you you don't think about it, just kind of it's just happening to you, and it's rooted in such a core part of yourself that it feels like you don't have any control over it. It feels like it's beneath the deepest place that you can even deal with. And for Romans 8 to say, the spirit is groaning on your behalf to God, interceding for you at a place so deep that you don't have words for. And you can groan with him, but but like you can't even articulate the meaning of it. And on some level that feels really weird. But on another level, if you're a, a person who's experienced trauma, that's going to be really comforting. Because what, what he's saying is he's saying, in the places so deep in your core being that you can't put into words, that is, it's not cognitively conscious in that you can't even talk about it. The spirit is there. And the spirit is there interceding and working in you and working for you to conform you into a son and daughter of God. Right? And I, for me, that's encouraging. That that's the depth or the level on which God is comprehensively working within my being. Yeah, that's extremely encouraging. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask you one more question, ministry wise, and then I'll let you have a final comment if you want to make it, and then we're going to wrap it up. Okay. So this Sunday, for example, I'm going to. So so the the issue is related to trauma. How should we talk at church? So there's ministries that we can have. There's ways that we should love people, but there's also just ways we talk. So, for example, on Sunday, I'm going to preach out of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8. In it, it says, basically, hey, you should follow the Lord and walk in a way that pleases Him, which includes being sanctified, which includes not committing sexual immorality, but learning to take mastery over your vessel, 
which probably means your body, right? So like, and not give yourself into desires like the heathen, right? So you don't live viscerally. You don't live by your desires. You live in control of yourself, right? And that's fundamental to this thing called sanctification or being made holy so as to walk in purity rather than impurity. So it's so I preach that, right? Now, if I'm going to talk in a way that's conscious of people who've experienced traumas, what what might I say in addition to that? Or how might I um, preface that in a way that recognizes the reality that they're dealing with as they try to grow in godliness? And how could small, so and therefore and therefore how could small group leaders then talk about this right. later in yeah. the week, you know? The thought that comes to my mind that would work on a variety of levels because it's just true of humans is um, the concept of idolatry. And we had talked a little bit before about escape, for example, but I think addressing that sin is sin happens because we want to save ourselves in some way. And we'll either do that through Christ, <laughs> we'll turn to Christ for that, or we will turn to something else, which is an idol. And that happens not in a vacuum, but because there's some sort of need that we have or unmet longing. And um, that's what we're that's what we're going to the idol or to God for. And so, um, I mean, those unmet longings or needs can come from. A, a wound or a trauma. And so um, I think within that, that gets back to the weed example with the roots. Like you might be engaging in this sin and it is sin. You're responsible for it. You're doing it. You are turning to an idol. Um, but why are you doing that? Could just be the next, like something to explore. Like why do you think you go to, um, to sex. It's not that, or whatever it might be, you know, why are you doing that? What mm -hmm. are you trying to fill or what are you feeling in those moments when you do that? Yeah. Who, who, you know, just like who didn't affirm you, what pivotal key person or caregiver in your life uh, didn't affirm you and left this hole that you feel needs to be filled. Right. Mm -hmm. so so desperately um i'm just thinking of you know you hate the sin you love the sinner I, and also jill you just kind of inspired the thought of remembering jesus and the, and the prostitute right and and writing in the sand and that that whole beautiful story like what did he do he did not condemn her no he loved her right he he was beside her. I, I, I would say Nick Daniel there, but um and and I think that that is how we respond. You know, we we respond with mm -hmm. love, we respond with rather than seeing, you know, a drug abuser because and that might be pushing a lot of responsibilities on us, a lot that having a a dear loved one or a friend who is struggling with some addiction or some uh, really you know, major dysfunction might make life really hard for us. Right. And we might get so frustrated and just be like, just stop it, just stop it. You know, <laughs> but, but it's about putting on 
the, the lens of Christ and, and really being intentional with prayer and connecting to the Holy Spirit and asking him to fill you and to show you what's really, you know, going on, what's in your, you know, guilty of um, as well. And, and trying to determine how you can best love the individual rather than, you know, just make your life easier. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that hopefully is becoming clear is that, um, trauma exists. It's actually more prevalent than we would like to think. Um, it is something that if we were a little bit more aware and cognizant of how it functions, we might be able to love people better. But in some ways at the end of all this, we're going to end up at the place where our love is going to have to be a whole lot stronger mm-hmm. and courageous mm-hmm. than it's been. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's going to have to be an action, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's Yeah. It's going to have to have a lot of tenacity and it's going to have to be active. Right. And it's going to cost us a lot. Right. A lot of forgiveness. Yeah. Right. It's one of, the, one of the reasons why one of the four spiritual pillars I picked for the book Substance was self-sacrificial love. That mm-hmm. to, to be a believer, like you can work on the mind of Christ and know your theologies and stuff like that. And you can want to believe that intuitively you're in step with the spirit. And you can um, want to have your personal behaviors ordered such that you have the strength to operate in virtue. Right. But in some ways, if it doesn't, if the spiritual emotion of a desire to sacrificially love other people to the to the level of their need isn't they're ready for you to burn to ashes your own control of your life it's just the redemption cannot happen the entire christian faith is predicated on the cross and christ giving himself entirely to the shame and death and suffering of the cross to direct us as well as to save us and i, I think that it's really important i think that, that there um when I was listening to a class recently on human personhood that Acton Institute put out, and one of the one of the uh, the teacher Michael Matheson Miller said, um, "If you understand the human person, you realize that every relationship is a subject subject relationship, meaning that a being and a person is relating to another being and a person." He said, "What sin does, it in fu- a very fundamental level, is it transfers that second person from a subject to an object." And that's what we mean. That's what we're supposed to mean when we, when we mean when we say objectification. It means that instead yeah. of seeing the other person as a human subject, another person you relate to as a person, they get transformed into an object that is something that is utilized, right? And that we, we you know we talk in this culture about the objectification of women in pornography or something like that, or we talk about objectification kind of flippantly, but that transition from seeing another human being as a subject to seeing them as an object is one of the most fundamental sins of human life. And it is rampant in commodified consumeristic societies mm-hmm. like ours. And for the ch- I think for the church to be glorious in its love, we have to repent of that. We just have to just so completely repent of seeing people as instruments of something we're doing and to see them as persons in which we're in these like mystically rich interpersonal relationships that will then always have the effect of creating the warmth of healing. And like on some level as a pastor, as much as I, I wish I, I wish I could have a whole nother life to study the human mind and its healing in the the realm of psychology. But in, in a lot of ways, these things have to come back to very fundamental things like the death you must die to love another person. 
and whether or not your leisure is more important to you or your clothes or whatever than to sit before another person and listen to their heartache, to be there, to provide companionship, to do these fundamentally human things. And, and there is an inhumanity that's produced by a culture in which sin and worldliness runs rampant in a way and undermines all these basically human things. Not only will we produce more trauma, the more we're like that as a culture, but we will have, we'll be completely impotent in the healing of the trauma once it takes place, which will create a spiral within the human society that just, just devours everything. And so I think the tenacity of our love um, and the, and the sacrifices we're willing to make for it have to be incredible. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's funny that we're, we're a culture that wants to um, explore the concept of trauma in ourselves and not expose ourselves to the toxicity of others. Mm-hmm. And yet hurting people or traumatized, like I would describe some of their behavior as toxic. Like it's gross and it's unhelpful and I don't want to be around it. And that's what my behavior is like when I'm functioning out of like really deep wounds and stuff. And I don't even realize it. It's really mm-hmm. toxic to other people. And so I just, I th- Christians are going to have to have a lot of grit and, and tenacity and courage in their love because if it's a flaky, flippant, vaporous kind of love, it's just never going to be able to meet the demands of life under the curse, and especially life under the curse under people who have been slashed by the curse mm-hmm. and have not fa- found the balm of Christ to apply itself yet to the deepest places. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I just I feel like this is just another, just like an, a place to recognize that. But I, I just, I feel like in the end, I, I just, in 50 years, I don't want to be known as the church that kept our theology straight through the progressive tumult of disbelieving biblical doctrines. If like, if they don't say that we loved to the end, then I don't, I don't know that I'll be all that proud of what we did. Hmm. Amen. You know? Yeah. So, it's good. yeah, I, I've got more stuff to say, but at some point, you know, you've got to shut these things down and we're over an hour. So I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to stop there, but I do want to tell people, uh, so Ab, uh, Abby and Jill are working on this group. Um, they, they are, um, they're hoping to kind of get it through its sort of like its beta phase by the sexuality conference. And so we're hoping that we'll be able to open it up a little wider. Um, but my fear is, is actually the demand for this is going to exceed the supply of help for some time. And so mentoring and helping people in the local church be like real healing helpers, um, not to replace clinicians because I think that they can do some really helpful stuff because they dedicate so much time to studying this. But I don't think the counseling office can ever create healing. I think it can prescribe it, but I think like the counselor has to be the doctor and then there's, somebody has got to play the role of nurse, you know? And I think that the church, the church, like the counselors have no hospitals, like not in the long term, like physical therapy sense, the place where you can go out to heal. They have places where they can acute you, keep, keep you, keeping you from hurting yourself and giving you like pharmaceuticals. Yeah. But they, like they, they, <laughs> right. Most counselors have to send their people out into places. And like Abby said, it's really depressing when they have to send their people out to lives that are just completely enveloped in dysfunction and pain. And so without, I, I mean, I believe that without the church and 
and um, places like it, there's just, there's very little hope for some people to be able to immerse themselves in the baths of healing that they require. And so I think that there's enormous opportunities in the church. And I think there's going to be increasing ones at High Point Church for people willing to be part of it. And I think in the long run, as I think the two of you are demonstrating, in a lot of cases, it's people who have worked through their traumas that are the best healers here. That, and I, So I think that the ministry of, of being a healer to, to people who've suffered a lot of trauma is going to come from people who, who know what it's like and have personally mm-hmm. felt the pain of facing it and right. those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, I I do want to say along those lines that you don't have to know, like you don't have to have experienced the same thing to listen and to understand and to basically people just don't want to walk by themselves. And it's, we have to overcome our own traumas. You can't do that for them. So that's not your responsibility. But that, what Nick said, that is huge if you can open up your life and your heart and have long suffering relationship with someone so that they're not alone in it yeah yeah i guess my my closing thought would just be there's there's too many people um hurting and bleeding out like we are in a war be aware of that and be a warrior engage with them Mm -hmm. move toward them love them and Mm -hmm. when you see people who are objectifying other people, you know, call it out, you know, stand up for it. When you, when you see, when you see that, that pain going on, you know, that pain being made, you know, just invest. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies, thank you for doing the, po- the podcast. Thank you for the stuff you've been doing already behind the scenes and um, working with other ladies to try to come up with a, um, a ministry that will really meet an important need. Um, I'm excited about what you guys will hopefully get to start doing in the fall, but I'm really excited about what we can accomplish in five years more than, mm-hmm. than just right, like, you know, running through a course one time. And hopefully um, this will affect the church's, the whole church's capacity to love and serve people. So thanks so much for what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.